0: Well, we are working our way through this book of John. If you would please turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This is a rich book. There's much teaching here. This is a gospel. This is the teachings of, uh, of Christ. And um, we are approaching his uh, Passion Week. We're not quite there, but we will be soon. John chapter 10. I'll begin reading in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, or the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one is, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father... Who has given them to me is is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are gods. He who called them gods, to whom the word of God was uh, the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are a blasphemer because I say, I am the Son of God. If you do not believe the works of my Father, do not believe... um, uh, If you do not believe the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. And therefore... They were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded them, eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, "While well, John performed no signs, yet everything John said about this man is true. Many believed in him there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank You for another opportunity to uh, approach Your Word and glean from its truths. Lord, we, we thank You for this precious Scripture that You have given to us. We thank You, Lord, for Your many, many blessings. For we are undeserving people. We recognize that our lives are, are just here on this earth because of Your grace. Because of your patience. Lord, we are sinful people and we will not even know salvation except for you. And we just thank you, Lord, for those, for these things and for the reminders of these things in your word. Now, Lord, as we approach your word, as we approach this time of focus, of study in your word, I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified. May I communicate clearly enough the intent of this passage so that we come away understanding what it says, understanding its meaning, and what you would have for us today. Oh Lord, again, we stand before you dependent upon your grace, completely dependent. We are, there's nothing within us that deserves your attention. We are sinful people. We recognize that apart from Your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would have no favor with You. We would have no grace. Lord, we, we just rest in these facts. And, and we can stand in that. And we can stand with confidence in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank You for the assurance that You give us of these things. We pray that You would bless the reading of Your Word, the time we spend in Your Word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John's purpose of this book is so that you would believe. He is presenting some evidence here, uh, seven or eight miracles in this book so that you can, you can say, yes, Jesus is God. He is of God, or he would not be able to do these miracles. And he is pointing us to belief in Christ. It's talking about salvation. He's pushing you to believe. He's wanting you to believe. Now, <clears throat> some may say that I have a reformed view of salvation. Uh, I don't, uh, I don't uh, necessarily care for that word, but I have a reformed view. I believe that God must work in a person's heart before they come to that place to believe God has to prepare that heart. God has to cultivate that heart and work in that heart and bring that person to a point of salvation. Now that does not mean that we as believers sit back and don't share the gospel and just depend upon God and let God work in the heart. That doesn't mean that man is not accountable. Man is responsible. They are accountable and they have a responsibility to God to believe. And He holds them accountable to that. And it doesn't mean that Christians just sit back and do and do nothing. And this passage is a great example of that very thing. Christ uh, implores them to believe, even down to the last minute. He's saying, "Believe, believe." Now we have. Uh, let me give you just a little bit of a review. In chapter nine, Jesus heals a man who is born blind, a, a blind beggar. And the Pharisees are upset about this and there's, there's dialogue and Jesus is using this to explain and to teach of the, the false teachers or the false shepherds that they are in contrast to him being the true shepherd. And that's where this has come from. And this is, this is some rich, deep teaching on Christ's love for his sheep and his willingness to lay down his life for them. In contrast to these false teachers, these Pharisees who really don't care for the sheep at all. And he's using that to teach the the man who was born blind and the disciples who were there and the people that had gathered around and some good, rich, deep teaching, some theological teaching. And that's what we see in this passage. When we come to uh, the end of chapter 10, starting in verse 22, we we, um, start the discussion all over again. And it's, again, about the sheep. It's, again, uh, this same theme that that runs throughout. And he kind of is drawing things to a conclusion. But he sets us up here. He gives us a little bit of the the setting. Look at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. Now, you need to know a little bit about that. He goes on to say in verse 23, It was winter, and Jesus was walking the temple of the portico of Solomon. So it was winter, and it was the Feast of Dedication. Well, what's that about? Well, this is not one of those feasts that come from the Old Testament. This was not carried over from that time. In fact, it was during uh, it was uh, uh, established during, between the Old and the New Testament in that intertestamental period, and um, it was established because of the King of Syria was very oppressive to the Jews. And uh, during a certain period of time, and, and they were under their bondage. And there was one particular king, King um, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, he ruled from 175 to 164. And he was, uh, he was devoted to the Greek culture. Everything had to be uh, upon that, uh, that standard, the Greek culture standard. All the literature, all the worship, the, the idols had to be uh, according to the Greek uh, standard. And he loved the Greek culture and he was enforcing this Greek culture upon the Jews. And um, in 170 years before Christ, he marched into Jerusalem and he took control of Jerusalem and he took control of the temple. And he he uh, desecrated the temple and he built a... Uh, a statue of Zeus, the Greek god Zeus. And what he did, now this was this was uh, over a period of time, but what he did to, to make the, the Jews to conform, he goes into the synagogue and uh, into the temple and he worships or he uh, sacrifices on that temple a, a pig. And that desecrates the temple. The temple is unclean. Now, this, of course, was upsetting to the Jews. And there was, there was war. But he, during this time, he he would forbid them to, to do any, any acts of Judaism. And over a six-year period. Now, there was one family that kind of would rise up. One man. Metathesis. And he was... He, he and his sons and his brothers and they would fight against it. Would be like guerrilla warfare, and they would try to push them out. And this war just went on for a period of time. And in 164 years before Christ, there is one of his sons, Judas Maccabeus. He became uh, he became he was very skilled at uh, at warfare, and he goes into Jerusalem and he kicks the uh, the foreigners out, and he reclaims Jerusalem, and he reclaims the temple, and he rededicates the temple at that time. So this is the fe- feast of dedication, or rededication of the temple. And this was in the winter time. Um, chill, uh, chislef. Chislef is the, uh, the month, and it would be chislef 25th, be like our Christmas celebration, but today we call it Hanukkah. It's this Jewish celebration. It's a it's a celebration of lights, and it was the celebration when uh, Israel became free again, and the foreigners were kicked out, and the temple was dedicated. And it would uh, there was a this feast would last about eight days, and it was the feast of Hanukkah. There's about two months difference between verse 21 and verse 22. Now, what pulls these together is the conversation. Here they go again. The scribes and the Pharisees, they're coming in again. They won't let this die. So the conversation is... And that's the setting. That's the setting. And um, they have a question for Jesus. So they see that He's walking along this. Of course, it's wintertime. It's going to be a little colder. And He's in the, the portico, or maybe the porch, we might call it today, of Solomon. And uh, that would be a little bit more shelter from the the wind or the cold. And that's where Christ was. He was walking through there. And they surround Him. They surround Him. They have a question for Him. Now, here's what I want us to see. Here's In this passage, there's all kinds of good, meaty stuff. Good, meaty doctrine. But here's one thing that I want you to see. Belief in Christ's deity. Belief in Christ's deity... Is, is the doorway that enters, or to enter, eternal life. It's the doorway to enter eternal life. Believing in Christ's deity. Now let me put it a different way. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will enter eternal life, but if you do not or believe in Jesus Christ, you will remain in your damnation. So the, the emphasis is upon belief. But there's some benefits that come with that, and we'll see that. But the emphasis is again pushing for belief. Now, when I was growing up, there was a almost every church service was a very high emotional appeal for people to believe and to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And um, it was an appeal to get saved. Every sermon was an appeal for salvation to get saved. Uh, to the point that uh, I just observed in my young life that people would walk the aisle and people would make some kind of emotional decision and yet live like however they wanted to. And that decision really meant nothing. So there was really no belief. And so I reacted to that. I would go to the other extreme and I would just not push people for salvation. I would not push for them to believe. Somewhere, there's a balance in Scripture. And I believe that that balance is seen in this passage. It's the perfect balance. That's what we see. I understand that I cannot save anyone. God has to do the saving, doesn't He? God has to be the one to work in that heart. I can't do it. But that does not mean that I should be passive in my evangelism. God uses me in that salvation process. Now, why? I have no idea. Um, Exactly how? I really have no idea. But I know, according to Scripture, He uses me in that evangelism process. To bring people to Himself. And we see that clearly spelled out in Romans chapter 9. Now here's the question. I want us to pull back a little bit. And here's just a a big picture question. If salvation is a work of God in the heart of mankind, then should we as Christians be reluctant? Should we be reluctant a little bit to encourage people to believe? I think this passage answers that like I said, there's a lot in this passage. You see the deity of Christ. And I could preach a whole sermon just on Christ's deity. We must recognize who He is. We could talk about salvation. We'll talk a little bit about salvation. There's a lot here about eternal security. We'll mention some of that. But here's what I want you to see. In this passage, we just, we just see some high emotion. Some real extreme stuff going on here so i don't really necessarily have an outline but there's some things that i just want to pull out from this passage as we move through it now look at verse 24 look at verse 24 here's what we have an antagonistic question by unbelievers an antagonistic question by unbelievers by this time in jesus' ministry they are antagonistic just antagonistic look at verse 40 or 24 the jews then Now, that would be the Jewish leaders, the the religious leaders of of their day, uh, the the scribes, the Pharisees, probably some Sadducees in there. They had come together. They hated Christ, and they were coming together. And it says, they gathered around Him. Now, that's putting it lightly. It, It literally means they surrounded Him. And what happened before? Before, He got away, didn't He? This time, they're surrounding him that he is not going to get away. There's another element here. He is work... where is he walking? He's walking around the temple. The co- temple is always under construction. There's always stones, big stones laying around. This was the perfect, in fact, what you see is it's a setup. It's a setup. Things have heated up. This is the, the, the third year of Jesus' ministry and he cannot last. They will not let him last. They will not, they will take him down. The emotions are high. And they are they're ready to do it. And this seems to be the best time, the best place to do it. We've got to take him down. That seems to be in their mind. And they surround him. Um, and we're saying, saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? As though they've never heard any, any discussion about this before. As long as, as, long as, as uh, though he has not proclaimed himself as deity. How long will you keep us in suspense? Now remember, just in the, uh, a few chapters earlier, they picked up stones to stone him because of what? Because of blasphemy, because of this very thing, because he claimed to be God. They knew that. And he says, if you are the Messiah, if you are the Christ, that would be the Greek pronunciation of it, if you are the Christ, then tell us plainly, Now, Jesus had been speaking in parables. He had been speaking in this language that the believers, those who would believe in him, they would be able to understand, and it would be somewhat obscured to those who refused to believe, those who were willfully unbelieving. Now, Jesus answers them. "Let Let me just pull back a little bit. By the way, they think he's crazy. They think he's insane. In fact, if you look back at verse 19 and 20, uh, it says uh, many of them, he um, uh, says that he has a demon. He's demon-possessed. He's out of his mind. Something, Someone else is in control of him. Some demon or something. Why do you even listen to him, they say. So they think he's crazy. They think he's a little off and he's got a death wish or something. And, and uh, so... Just extreme here. But look at Christ's response, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Now, at this point, I would be scared. <laughs> I would back off. They're surrounding me. I'm feeling a little threatened. I- I'm going to back off but Jesus doesn't back off one ounce in fact he puts it to them he said you are the ones who will not believe in spite of the clear evidence you won't believe you refuse to believe Jesus is not intimidated is he doesn't seem to be intimidated in this in fact he's he's very aggressive he's very bold he's not ashamed at all now, like I said, I, by this time, I would be a little afraid. These guys are a little, you know, there's all these stones around here. I'm not going to claim this, and I'm not going to start to back out. I'm going to start to preserve my own life. And then I'm just reminded of, this, of the biblical principle. We find it in Matthew chapter 10. Turn, turn over there. I want us to see this. Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't back off. He's very, very bold. Matthew chapter 10, here's a principle. And this is a sobering principle for me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. If you confess me, I'll confess you. If you're not ashamed of me, I'm not going to be ashamed of you. But whoever denies me before, my, before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, right at this point, Carl Dingus would be starting to question, Is this serious? If these guys mean business. They're going to kill me. And I would be right here. I would be having to make this decision. Is this, is this real in my life or is it false in my life? This is the, where the rubber meets the road. Am I going to just back off and deny Christ and get out of this situation? Or am I going to confess Christ and face the consequences? Come what may. Look over, Look over in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Same principle. Same idea. Luke chapter 9 verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me, now that's that's one thing. But whoever is ashamed of me and my words, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the uh, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. If you are ashamed of me and my words, I'm going to be ashamed of you. So there's no pulling back. there's no no question about what is the right thing to do here. Jesus can't pull back. He's not ashamed. In fact, he's very bold. He's very aggressive. And and here's the bottom line. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 16. You know this verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not going to pull back from knowing Christ. I'm not going to pull back from and be ashamed of knowing His Word, proclaiming His Word. I'm not going to pull back. I'm not going to pull back from the Gospel because that's the very power, the very power of God for salvation. So I think some, you know, if you're like me, maybe it's just me. So often when we, we feel that tension in, in a situation, we're a little antagonistic, I think so often we, we pull back. I think we're a little afraid. And that's the very time to, to be bold and to proclaim the gospel because it is the power. That's when you're going to see the power just explode. Let me give you another one. Uh, turn over to Second Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. There's two or three in this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 1. There's no place in the Christian life of, of pulling back, of being reserved, being a little passive. 2 Timothy chapter 1. In verse. Uh, look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. W- what is that? Well, that He He died. That's, that's kind of shameful to have a Savior that died. I mean, that, how do you explain that? Or, in our day, you know, when it comes down to the resurrection, yeah, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, That's a little strange. That's a little weird. And we may pull back from the testimony of the, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, don't be ashamed. Don't pull back. Don't be timid of the testimony of our Lord. Or... Of me, his prisoner. But he says, join with me in the suffering. Don't be ashamed to suffer for Christ, Paul is saying. Don't pull back. There's no place for that. Look at verse uh, Look at verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Here's why I suffer. But I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to suffer, Paul says. Listen, here's the crux of the matter. For I know... I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard that which I have trusted to him until that day. That's confidence. That's confidence, not just a shallow confidence. That's a, a deep-rooted conviction. I know my shepherd. That's what we talked about last week. And my shepherd knows me. And listen, that causes me to not be ashamed. And I will stand. I will stand even in spite of opposition. And I will pro- proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God. And look at verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anasiphas for He... He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. When Paul was in prison, he probably saw this a lot with the Christians. they A little shame. Well, Paul's in prison. Prison? Yeah, he's in prison. Oh, well, forget that. That can't be a believer. A believer in prison? A believer suffering? A believer that uh, he must not be blessed of God? he was in prison because he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, there's no place in backing off. There's no place for shame. There's no place to, to um, not be bold. We have to be bold. And I'm telling you, this is a time in, in our nation's history that we must stand up and be bold. We must be bold. Why are we so reluctant to turn the conversation around to spiritual things when we're talking with unbelievers I just notice myself and i'm just this is just confession time i'm not pointing the finger at you I'm pointing it at me as well because that's just that's kind of the way we are we're, we're timid I think it comes back to do we know do we have confidence in who we believe and who we trusted and and who we've put our faith and our trust do we have confidence in him listen confidence and boldness comes when you know you're right and this is the time that the church must stand up and say we know we're right we may not know everything but there's a few things that we've got right and it's salvation and we have to be bold on that. There's no place for shrinking back in our evangelism. This is, this is the time. Our, our nation, the people around us need Christ. They need to be saved. Now Jesus knows that, that these men that have surrounded Him, they, He knows that they've rejected Him already. And He doesn't back off at all. And that's, that's just, uh, to me, that's just amazing to me. And he's the perfect example, isn't he? The perfect example of boldness. And back in your face, no matter what, he's, he's not going to shrink back. They're not going to intimidate him. Even though he may look crazy. Even though he may look insane. Even though he may proclaim this, this resurrection stuff. Even though he may have this faith that doesn't, that doesn't match up with the science of his day. That's exactly where we are, isn't it? And the, the world looks at us and the faith. Well, that's crazy. Science gives us all the answers that we need. Listen, we need to be bold. And that boldness will come from knowing our shepherd, from knowing who he is. Let's move to the next one. Look at verse 26. This is, this is just a profound theological statement by Christ. And it just kind of comes out of nowhere. And I just think how deep and how rich this is. But look at this, verse 26. But you do not believe. That's a matter of fact, they have not believed, they will not believe, they do not believe. Because, because you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. And the word there, the key word is because. Y- you have not been drawn by the Father, You are not one of those who the Father has drawn and given to me. Look at verse 29. My Father, so he's referring back to his Father, the Heavenly Father, who has given them, who is that? That's the sheep. God the Father has given the Son, these sheep, to me. He's given them to me. How does that work? Well, obviously, God is at work in salvation. God is at work in the heart, bringing them, bringing us to Christ. He has to work and cultivate that heart, and, uh, and He, and He draws us, He, He woos us to Christ, to the point that we recognize, yes, that's our Savior. And we are the love gift, from God the Father to God the Son. It's a love gift. It's a beautiful thing in Scripture that we see, really kind of throughout Scripture. But how does this work? Jesus is holding them accountable for not believing. And you get that. He is holding them accountable for not believing. They do not believe, and they're responsible for their unbelief. But then He says, because you're not my sheep. So who's responsible? Who's respons- How does this work? This is kind of the crux of the matter for salvation, isn't it? God has to work in that heart. But but the man is responsible, right? When we understand that. Listen, in God's mind, there is a perfect balance. I will not stand up here and, and pretend to understand that. I don't. But in a holy and righteous and good and loving God's mind, those are all in perfect balance. If you think about it, look over at Luke chapter 22. Think about um, Judas, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ. In chapter 22 of Luke, verse 22, Jesus kind of just, again, leaves these two things hanging for us. And a little bit of an explanation. Luke 22, 22, For indeed, the Son of Man, that's Him, Christ... The Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Who determined that? Well, God. He decreed. In fact, He sent His Son. He would die. So it's already been determined. But woe to the man to whom He betrays. Or uh, who He has betrayed. Whom He betrayed. Who's that? That's Judas. Judas is completely responsible for his action. Judas is, is doing what Judas wants to do. But in the big picture, he is in complete control. complete, uh, respo- Completely responsible for his actions under God. Under God. In fact, it's predetermined. That Jesus was going to come and die on the cross and and Judas was going to betray Him, but yet Judas is completely responsible for his actions. We see the same thing over in Acts, Acts chapter 2. In one of the sermons that uh, I think it was Peter that was preaching, and uh, and he says uh, very similar things. He's talking with some of the men that put Christ to death. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 23, he says and he's he's preaching uh, i 'll start verse twenty two um, men of Israel listen to these words jesus the Nazarene, the man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs from God performed through him in your midst just as you yourself know and he's he's getting the right person he knows this is the, this is Jesus Christ this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you. And in that you, he is making them culpable. They are responsible for their actions. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. They were responsible. And and Peter was there and he's pointing the finger and he says, you guys did this. But at the same time, it was God's predetermined plan. Now, how does that work? I do not know. But listen, both are in Scripture. Man's responsibility and God's working in the heart. Both have to be there. That's salvation. God has to work. So often, we just see salvation from man's point of view. And when we really don't think about that, God is working in that person's heart. We are so limited in our view. Man has a responsibility to put his faith and his trust in Jesus Christ. But yet at the same time, we know that God has to work in a heart. And that's the perfect balance here. Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not my shepherd. You do not believe and you're accountable for your unbelief. But yet God's uh, the big picture. I know you do not you're not, my, you're not my sheep. God has a huge part. In fact, sometimes we even interpret things from our standpoint. And we kind of leave God out of the picture. When we share in our testimony or something like that, we'll, we'll say things and we'll interpret our circumstances from our own perspective. Um, which is, is fine. It's good to, to know that. We interpret them from our own perspective and, uh, our own experience. But listen, and, and from our own understanding, but it would be better to go to scripture and label things, label things from a biblical standpoint, from God's standpoint. Here's what, what God was doing in my life at the time of my circumstance, uh, the circumstances around my salvation. Now, John chapter 10, There's a lot that God does in salvation man has his responsibility, but God has his responsibility as well God works in a person's heart and mind and life. How does that work? Well, let's look John chapter 16 Just quickly just a few little things here. The Holy Spirit has to work in a person's life John chapter 16 verse 8 Now Before He left, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit when He comes to you. And He, when He comes, verse 8, will convict the world concerning sin. Concerning sin. So the Holy Spirit is going to be there. And before I even reach that person with the gospel, God, the Holy Spirit, is going to work in that person's life and is going to bring them to the point that they're convicted over their sin. Cultivate that heart. Sin and righteousness and judgment... Those are three elements concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The Holy Spirit has to, has to work. And if He didn't work in our heart, in our mind, in our life, we would not be convicted over our sinfulness. And we would just go about doing whatever we wanted to do. Let me give you another one. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's another work of the Holy Spirit. Something that God does in our heart even before salvation. First Corinthians chapter 12 kind of gives you indication that God is at work. Therefore, verse 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaks by the Holy Spirit, says, Jesus is accursed. Well, if you're empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're not going to get up and you're not going to say, Jesus is a curse. Well, that just is inconsistent. No one does that. Now, just the opposite is true, he says. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to work in a person's heart before they come to that place in their heart that, yes, Jesus is Lord. I recognize who he is, and it's a work of the Holy Spirit in the person's heart. God is always at work in our life as believers and even as unbelievers. The Holy Spirit comes through and to draw us to God, to, dr- to draw us to Christ. And to woo us, He has to work in our hearts. So it's a work of the Holy Spirit. So we pray. When we go out to evangelize, when we, when we know we're going to be talking to this person about salvation, we pray, Lord, go ahead of me. Work in their hearts. Convict them of their sinfulness. Because those are the issues of salvation. Bring them to the point that they believe that they will confess you as Lord. And we, we can, we can point to several other verses just for the sake of time. We won't vote though. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. In verse nine, verse ten, he says, "We are His workmanship. He is the one at work in our life. We don't understand it all, but it's there." In fact, in the book of John, just John chapter one gives us so many of these little illustrations here. John chapter one, verse twelve. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe on His name. You see that that emphasis. Who were not born of of blood, nor of nor the flesh, nor of the will of man. It's not by I will myself into spiritual existence. I will myself into the rebirth. No. But of God. God has to do that in our lives. I think we get the picture. I think you get the idea. It's hand in glove. That glove will lie dormant until I, until I put my hand in there and begin to Work with that glove it 's like the the sailboat and the wind that wind that sailboat will go nowhere unless the wind is there moving that sailboat. Now, let me go back to John chapter ten <clears throat> since salvation, and this is the point here, since salvation is an act of god it 's something that God has to do in our life. We respond by belief and trusting in him. We've done nothing to gain our salvation, have we? It's not us that that that, that uh work to, to gain it. So therefore there's nothing that we can do to keep it. In fact, it's the responsibility of the shepherd to guard the sheep, and that's where Jesus' mind goes. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, he says. That's the response of a believer. They hear Christ's voice. Yes, God's worked in my heart. I respond and I I follow Him. I just do what He says, man. He's my shepherd. I know that. I'm confident in that. And He says, and I give. Now that's a gift from Christ Jesus to you and to me as believers. And I give eternal life to them. That's security. They will not have eternal punishment. They will not have eternal death. They will not lose this salvation. I'll give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. That's the same concept. He's just saying it over and over in the same, in a different way. No one can snatch them out of my hand. In fact, my Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's security. That's security. That's profound to me. What is amazing, though, is some people would say, No, you can lose your salvation. I can take myself out. Or I can, you know, other people can take me out. And Christ says, No, it's a gift that I give to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I give them this gift, and, and it's eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal life. So often, I think we as sheep uh, just go around a little afraid, a little scared. As though we had worked for our salvation and we have to work to keep it. We don't. It's all by grace. Now, listen, that, that should drive us to our knees and humility before God that He's given us such a wonderful gift of salvation. Let's move on quickly. We, we'll move through these next two quickly. We, we see a, an extraordinary claim. Of Christ's deity. An extraordinary claim. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. He finally answers their question. And he answers it to the extreme. I'm just not claiming to be God. There's other guys that have come along. In the Jewish culture that has claimed to be God. No. He'll go beyond that. He'll give them exactly what they want to hear. I and my Father are one. He is claiming deity. And they got it. Man, they that, that had to just explode in their mind. And they picked up stones and they were going to kill him right there. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And they were ready. I mean, what else did they need? I mean, he's claiming to be God. And there's no question about that, that claim. Now, Jesus doesn't want to just leave it there. He wants to make sure that it is clear in their mind what he is saying. So he asks a couple of questions of them. So that there's no misunderstanding. Verse 32. Jesus answered them. Oh, I showed you many good works for my father. And again, he's pulling his father. And the unity there is his father. In these next few verses, you'll see so great. For which of them are you stoning me? Because I healed a man on the Sabbath day. Are you stoning me for that? And of course, the answer is no. And he knows that. But he's clarifying in their own mind. Are we just mad at him? Did And there's liberals today that would say, well, it was all a big misunderstanding. They killed Christ because they misunderstood Him. He was not really claiming to be God. Now, this passage answers that clearly. Jesus wants to make sure they have gotten it right, and so it can be recorded in Scripture for us today, and, and, and they get it. And they say to him, verse 33, no, obviously not for good work. It says, for good works we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Oh, there's only one God, and you're not it, and we're going to kill you for that. What about one other misunderstanding? There's another misunderstanding. Maybe it was a misunderstanding of motives. Maybe they just got the motives wrong and, and they misunderstood that. No, there's no misunderstanding of that. No, they heard him right. He was claiming to be God. Jesus didn't deny that. In verse 34, is another one. Jesus answered them again. Has, has it not been written in your law? Now, Jesus is going to pull in the law from the Old Testament, really, for me, for an obscure passage. But to them, they probably knew this. It says, uh, from your law, I said, you are God's. Now, let me go back and just read that for you. In the context here, he's quoting Psalm chapter 82. Psalm chapter 82, if you want to turn there, we won't spend very much time at all. But Psalm chapter 82 was a, was a psalm that was written by some of the prophets and they were condemning, condemning these, these rulers of Israel at this time. Let me read verse 1 for you. God, God takes His stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. He's condemning these rulers. How long will you judge unjustly? And he's condemning these rulers. They had placed themselves to the point of God. And they were, they were ruling in God's stead. And, and so they could kind of see that. And they just kind of elevated themselves. And in verse 6 he says, I said, you are gods and, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Now that was not a, a positive thing. That was a negative thing. It was a little derogatory term. But because they had elevated themselves. And Jesus is saying, are you just killing me because I have elevated myself? And, it's, and it goes beyond that. Listen, this is no shallow claim. This is no shallow claim to be to deity. To him, uh, uh, if he called them gods, he goes on to explain, if he called them gods, that little g, if this is just a matter of semantics, just a matter of wording, well, I won't use that word God. But he goes on, to whom the word of God came... And the Scriptures cannot be broken. Now that's a powerful statement there too. We could spend time. The Scriptures cannot be broken. The Scriptures are true because they're from God, a God who is true. Do you say to me, whom the Father sanctified, that means set apart, He sent me into the world, you are blaspheming because I claim to be the Son of God? He says, if it's just over semantics, guys, that's not a good reason. They didn't respond at all to that. But Jesus wanted to clarify. They were going to kill him. And it wasn't going to be over just miscommunication or some wrong motives or some shallow claim that, uh, that other men have made before that he claimed to be God. He's just using that term. No, it was deeper than that. He was making himself out to be God. He was saying, in fact, Christ says, I and my father are one. And that is profound. That's profound. That's a concept we really don't even see. He might be saying we're one together, we're unified, that kind of stuff. But no, he's saying we're one. He's making himself out to be the very God. And we see that with the whole Trinity, the Holy Spirit and God the Son. But we we must go on. Now, here's here's what I want you to see. Verse 27. If I do not do the works of my Father, if they're not from God, if these miracles that I do are not from God, then don't believe me. What I do, I do based upon the activities, the, the, the things that my Father has told me to do, and if, I, if I'm not doing those, then you don't believe me. I don't want you to act on on uh, something that's not by faith. do says, if you, don't, if you don't see it, then don't believe me. But, he says... But if I do them, if I do these works based upon my father's uh, commands from my father, though you do not believe me, believe the works that I do. Believe the works that I do. Listen, even in this, in this tense moment, they're ready to kill him. He's what? He's, he's pleading for them. Believe. 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 Look, don't believe my words. Believe my actions. Just look objectively. Believe. And they really couldn't even do that. It shows the spiritual blindness that they have. But he says, Believe the works that you may know and understand. Listen, belief comes before understanding. Understanding they wanted understanding up front and jesus says no look you just look at the evidence you'll see who i am just put your faith in that and then you'll have understanding of who i am it's a matter of faith it's a spiritual matter isn't it it's not just a it's not just a a small shallow matter no this is a deep matter i they would say i will not yield i will not put my faith in something i do not know I will not put my faith in someone other than myself, actually. And what I can attest and what I can handle, what I can feel and touch. And this whole faith in this, he says, I don't know. No, you have to believe first and then there will be understanding, Jesus says. And he's calling them to look at things objectively. He's pleading with them, isn't he? I don't think I would be there. I would be scared. I'd probably be gone by this time. Jesus is as bold as a lion. And he, and he takes it back to him and he says, No, guys, the problem is not some shallow miscommunication of any kind. The real problem is, is you won't believe just the evidence of what you see. That's the way God works, isn't it? He gives us a little bit. You put your faith in that. Yeah, I, I believe that. A little bit more. I believe that. Even though we have small faith, if we exercise on that small faith, just on what we see, God will bless that. God will give us understanding. Because it's a matter, of not the quantity of faith, it's just a matter of surrendering that will. Who they, who's their faith in now? It's in themselves, in what they can see, what they can. I can't comprehend these things, so I'm not going to believe it. It's faith in themselves. They need faith in Christ and God. And they don't believe it. If they would believe, then they would have understanding. And here's what they would understand. The Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, He's coming back to that unity. Again, with His claim to being God. And they got it again. They understood. They refused. They rejected Him. Verse 39, Therefore, they they were seeking again to seize Him. Now, this has already caused some disruption and confusion. They were kind of glumping together. What do you say about that? What do you say about that? And... So um, they, were, they turned around to seize him again, and then he eluded them. He's gone. It wasn't the time, was it? And we see the same pattern throughout John. It wasn't the time. It's always in God's timing. They're not going to lay a hand on him till, until then. But Jesus put it to them. He, he begged them to believe. His enemies... Those who He knew were blind. Those who He knew were not His sheep. They had not believed yet, but He begged them. I said, should our evangelism be anything less? We have answers. If they're really deep convictions of our heart, that should produce some boldness in this world. To go to the people that are unsaved and say, look, I beg of you believe in Jesus Christ. Don't get sidetracked by these shallow little arguments on the side. The real issue is your faith in Christ. Now, here's some good news. Look at verse 40. And he went away again to uh, Jerusalem. It wasn't the time yet. Now, I, I will say this. I will tell you this. This is the last time he was in Jerusalem. The next time he comes into Jerusalem, he's riding a donkey. And they're they're waving palm branches in front of him. This is a few months, really, before he before he was crucified. And this was the final call. The final push that Jesus has with these men. And he pushes them to believe. And they refuse to believe. They reject him. At this time, they reject him and they put into place this whole scheme. We've got to kill him. And here's we've got to orchestrate this where he doesn't get away. In verse 40, So he goes away, goes out of Jerusalem... To, to Jordan. This is rarely where he started his ministry. If you remember back, and John the Baptist was there. And here's what it says in verse 41: Many, many came to him. So even though he wasn't there, they came out to see him, and they came to him, and they said, "While John performed no signs, everything this man said about, everything John said about this man, was true." And many believed. I'm glad that the end like that. There there was a handful. There's the 12, but there's many outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Some commentaries say there's about 500 that, that believe, and I don't know how they base that on just different towns outside of Jerusalem and things, and but there are some believe, listen, when we go into the world, we're going to be, to, to, to be persecuted. We're going to get the antagonism of the world. They're going to think we're strange. But listen, we need to be bold. And we've got one message, and that's Jesus Christ, and they must believe. And we can't get sidetracked on all the other issues. And most, most are going to reject us. But there, there will be some. Every once in a while, you'll talk to somebody, and all of a sudden, whoa, whoa. God has worked in their heart. There it is. It's clear. They're saved. So God will reward. God will reward our efforts at times. It's amazing stuff to me. Amazing stuff that God would even use. A sinful wretch like me in the process of bringing others to Christ. But He does. He uses all of us as believers. But we have to have conviction of heart. We have to believe this stuff. Let me ask you, do you really believe this? Or are you just playing this religious game like the Pharisees are playing? Is there any confidence in your life that you know whom you have believed? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is convicting to my own heart. Oh Lord, we don't do enough. We don't do enough. We're not bold enough. Lord, we shrink back. We're, we're a little ashamed. We're a little timid. Oh, Lord, I pray that it is not because of you haven't worked in our life. I pray, Lord, that it is because of just our own shallowness. But, Lord, give us some depth. Help us to know You so that we have deep convictions on who You are so that we can proclaim it with boldness even in the face of danger. Even in the face of persecution. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for working in our hearts. We recognize that, Lord, without You, we would not We would not have salvation. We would have never chosen. Lord, You have to convict our hearts of sin. We would even know we were sinful. So, Lord, we thank you. We're grateful. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.